I'm Carlo Pignataro and you are listening to a new episode of Lux and Tech. Why do you do what you do? Have you ever asked yourself this very question? Have you ever investigated the neural and psychological mechanism that govern your brain and as a consequence your mind and which determine every decision you make? If you haven't, this episode of the podcast will provide you with newly found scientific evidence that the brain is first and foremost an organ and that by understanding it and by taking care of it will help you in many ways to make better decisions for your life. You see, Never before in history has humanity known more about neuroscience. And the reason I'm addressing this topic over and over again in the podcast is because I've realized this is a field of science that anyone can and should gain access to to improve their life, their business, and their relationships with stakeholders, clients, and other human beings. I was very fortunate to come across the book of today's guest, Helena Boski titled Why We Do What We Do, because it's an accessible yet comprehensive guide which opened my eyes and made me see faults, biases, but also new routes I can take to improve my reasoning, my decision-making, and the health of my brain. Helena started her journey in neuroscience and psychology after many years in the corporate world, and this experience makes her a pragmatic researcher and a very understandable author, something rare, in a world often confined within academic borders. Have a listen. Helena, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Carlo. I'm very happy to be here. The title of your book, Why Do We Do What We Do?, is very promising and intriguing. When I approached it for this interview, I said to myself, wow, what a great opportunity to finally understand my brain and make sense of all the mistakes I make and perhaps also find a clear path to reinforce the good habits. And I have to say the book lived up to my expectations and I think it's a great source of learning for anyone willing to understand how human beings function in order to improve pretty much anything from relationships to health, from communication to business and so forth. But before we delve into the various chapters of the book, I cannot avoid asking you, why did you did what you did? I mean, why this book? Uh, well, it's a great question to start with. So I came to psychology and neuroscience after quite a few years working in business. And I started in sales and marketing, moved into training, and uh, I had a lot of questions that I needed to answer. And I just trained initially in running uh, leadership development programs, sales programs, after having worked in sales. But then I realized that I, I would have to delve deeper. So I started my journey towards finding out about the brain. And I, I started introducing little snippets of neuroscience into my sessions, and people seemed to have a huge appetite for this stuff. And so I then started studying it and I went back and I studied for many years while I was working. So I would always try and find the application. So I wanted to find out why performance appraisals don't work, why change doesn't work, um, why people hate being told what to do, uh, why we're quite lazy as a species um, and why we need people around us, uh, you know, why we're sociable creatures. So I really uh, pulled all of that learning together. The book really emerged from many of my sessions as a speaker. And people would ask me, is there a book? Is there a book? And I would say, I'll write one. And eventually I did, because my reading list that I was giving to people was getting longer and longer and longer. So I decided to try and pull everything together. But as we know, in neuroscience, it's an unending journey and you know as, as fast as you write something more research is coming out all the time particularly at the moment i understand also because neuroscience is a is a relatively new science isn't it it is and the reason for that is that it's only in recent years that we've been able to look inside the brain so if you look at people like freud and jung uh, they were basing a lot of their theories on uh, interviews and what people were telling them But more recently, we've been able to see inside the brain and see what the brain does uh, when we hear certain words, 
uh, when we're asked to make certain decisions. And so we've got a, a much better feeling about how the brain responds to certain stimuli. And that gives us a much more concrete basis on which to offer new suggestions and theories. So your work starts with, a, with an introduction, so to speak, of the brain, with many scientific details, which I'd love to share with our audience today, of course, without getting too technical. And there's one detail which immediately got my attention, the fact that uh, the male and female brain are different. Yeah, this has caused huge controversy because there are uh, many psychologists and scientists who believe that any differences are nurtured in. So nurture plays uh, the biggest role in our brain development. And there, on the other side of that, there are other scientists who believe that we are born with some differences. So what I've tried to do is show the balance between the two. So our brain is... Very In a very simple way, there are some key differences. And generally, the male brain is bigger than the female brain, generally, because it has to control a larger muscle mass. And there are certain structures in the female brain that are slightly different to the male brain. And you would expect that because of the way our bodies form. And of course, sometimes we could be born with more of a male brain inside a female body and, and the other way around. But generally, there are some biological structural differences. But we do have to remember that our environment plays an enormous role in how our brain then develops. And our DNA gets dropped into an environment and not every gene will play a part. So that will all depend on the upbringing that we then receive. And then, of course, you have epigenetics, which shows that how do you then pass on those changes to the next generation? And the changes to a genotype is known as a phenotype. And then that often gets passed on from generation to generation. From generation to generation. I think that the fact that we now look at the brain, and not just at the mind, but at the brain as an organ, gives us a much better understanding of uh, how the physical and biological parts play an important role in the development of a human being. Yes, and we do have to remember that the, the way the brain responds to things, the messages within the brain, which are electrochemical, so you have these amazing, uh, this amazing setup where you have around 86 billion neurons in the human brain, and none of them actually touch. They sort of come together like this. And what's truly remarkable is that they have to still communicate. So the message then gets turned into chemical messengers called neurotransmitters, which then take the message on. And if we don't keep these neurotransmitters, these chemicals carefully balanced, then everything becomes affected, our mood, our well-being, our physical health. So everything is a careful balance, uh, beautifully orchestrated, beautifully designed, but we do need to look after it. Helena. Like I'm sure many members of our audience, I'm a parent, the father of two six-years-old children, and I cannot miss the opportunity to ask an expert like yourself, what do we need to know about our children's brain until their teenage? Oh my goodness, that's a wonderful question. So children's brains are growing all the time, and I think it's up to about the age of six where the brain starts to reach the size that we would then take on to our adult life. However... What isn't developed is the area here, the frontal lobe. And this doesn't fully develop until we're in around our mid-20s. And this is a really important to know because this area of the brain is so important to us as humans. It's what makes us human. It, it's the seat of our executive functioning, the home of rational judgment and decision-making. And if you imagine teenagers have an underdeveloped frontal lobe, this isn't great news for parents so teenagers will push against boundaries and they don't know how to make the best decisions because they don't have the neural capacity for that yet. This is why we need parental guidance and we need boundaries to all the way through. But teenagers will always push against that. On top of which, teenagers are going through something called synaptic pruning, where this is programmed to sell death where they have to prune back. It's a bit like a gardener in a, in a garden, pruning back a rose bush. And we've built up so many connections and synapses over our childhood into our teenage years. And now it's time for the brain to be pruned to then create the brain that we carry into our adult life. 
So this pruning has to take place. And so this is why teenagers risk take, because they're constantly pushing to see which synapses are they going to keep, which ones are they going to lose. And uh, so being a parent during those years, I think, is quite challenging, but critical, critical time for brain development for children. But but what I would say about young children, especially children your age, Carlo, is that we do need um, to touch. We need a lot of um, love and we need a lot of nurturing and a lot of touch. Uh, So that's the first thing is that if you look back to the 1980s, the Romanian orphanages and the children weren't cuddled, they weren't touched and they suffered badly mentally and physically. So children need a lot of a lot of love, a lot of cuddling and they need a lot of exercise because children need to run around and be children and they need to enjoy their childhood sitting at a computer screen will be terrible for them and technology, social media, keep it away from them. I can totally see what you mean. And uh, as you were speaking about teenagers, uh, I thought of all the pressure society puts on them in terms of decision making. I mean, we expect them to make decisions that they are not physically ready to take yet. Absolutely. We are expected to make decisions that will then determine the course of our life at a time when we're least equipped to do it. And I can't stress that enough, but it's not good to to give teenagers that freedom, that choice, because... They're not equipped. And actually, I speak to a lot of people who come into their mid-20s and I always ask them, how do you feel? How do you feel? And they say that there's a feeling of calm sweeps over them and they feel different. And they will all say that without exception. And it's remarkable. And I think do think we should be playing. Now we know more about the brain. We should definitely be playing more to what the brain is designed to do and not what it's designed to do. The next chapter of your book that had me experience quite a few wow moments is titled Brain and the Emotions. Because as much as we'd love to think of ourselves as logical thinkers, there's no such thing as thinking and making decisions without having emotions in the way. No, we are all incredibly emotional creatures and we've been designed that way because we've had to make quick emotional decisions to stay alive. We have had to be able to react quickly to potential threats or stresses in our world. And that's given us this ability to respond and react rapidly, but sometimes uh, we do it too quickly now. And we, we switch on emotions probably that aren't always helping us because we're not really dealing with uh, life or death stresses anymore although you know you'd argue that we are at the moment with COVID-19 but fear fear and anger do take hold very quickly and they manifest themselves very similarly in our brain and body so we do have to recognize the impact of them and try and slow down our thinking a little bit but it's interesting because when we when we think we're being rational we're using our our rational brain. So your emotional brain is kind of here. It's your in your temporal lobe. And uh, by the time this starts to come online, this has started to dominate our behavior. And then we switch this on and we think we rationalize an emotional decision. And then we think we're very rational. <laughs> and we're not. We're just rationalizing something that, that we've uh, responded emotionally to. I love the quote from the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, who you mentioned uh, many times in the book, uh, who said, we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that sometimes think. Damasio, fantastic. You know, uh, there have been a lot of research has actually come out of Italy. And in fact, the mirror neurons, uh, mirror neurons were a mistake but, and uh, they, the researchers, it was uh, an Italian researcher who was um, leading the research and they were working with macaque monkeys. And this is the mirror neurons um, are described as being our circuits of empathy. They're the neurons that help us empathize and feel what other people feel. And the neurons literally talk to each other. And the researchers suddenly stopped, um, had a break, and they had all these macaques uh, in, their, in their cages and the researchers were, still had the macaques' brains wired up, and they started to eat their lunch. And all of a sudden, the uh, the monkeys' brains started to activate as if they were eating their lunch. And so they realized that the brain, you don't have to be 
doing the same thing. You just have to be observing what someone else is doing for your brain to then mirror uh, the behavior. And this is what this is where empathy comes from. Um, and so, you know, this is so we um, we resonate emotionally and neurally. Uh, and interestingly, another psychologist in Yale, Paul Bloom, has said this isn't necessarily always a good thing because we can become emotionally contaminated. And if we simply feel what someone else is, else feels, we then can't kick on our, you know, kickstart our frontal lobe to to think rationally about how to help them if we're just feeling their pain. So what can we do to control the amount of emotions we put into our reasoning? I think that the best thing that we can do is slow down our responses. So, you know, when we're feeling, when we get an email that we don't like and we think, I'm going to answer this email and we start bashing on the keyboard and we, you know, fire off an, an angry email, it's really important that we take a step back. And and I think that this is this is really important. I think the French have got a lovely expression for it. It's called reculer pour mieux sauter. So take a step back in order to then take a better step forward, a better leap forward. So we do need to we do need to pause and even a tiny pause can help the brain refocus and reevaluate and reassess. But we are such gut instinct creatures that we react to so much around us, particularly if we're in a state of heightened anxiety or heightened fear. We do tend to respond. And at the moment, emotions are really strong. People are angry. People are frightened. And we do need to try and create some calm in our world as much as we can. I also found extremely useful in your book when you referred to the work of uh, the economist and psychologist and Nobel Prize uh, Daniel Kahneman, and in particular System 1 and System 2, where System 1 is the primal brain, the eldest in terms of human evolution, the part of the brain that has over 500 million years of history and that controls pretty much everything we think and do and all our behaviors and our beliefs. And system two, which is the logical mind, much younger in terms of human evolution, it's only three, four million years old. And uh, and I had a conversation about it uh, with a previous guest of the show, uh, Patrick Renvois, a neuromarketing and neurosales expert. And, uh, and I think it's extremely important uh, that uh, our listeners develop an awareness of these two brains that are controlling their lives. Would you like to elaborate more on this? Yes. Now, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky were the fathers of behavioral economics, which has become very... So neuromarketing, this is really a big deal. And they started their work in the 70s, just looking to see... Now, your system one brain is here. I always call it the Homer brain. Um, and your Spock brain is here. And Yes, you're right. This part of the brain is it's newer in us as a species. It's the slowest, it's been the slowest part of the brain to evolve. It's the slowest part of the brain to develop when we're growing up. And it's the slowest part of the brain to react. But it's critical we bring it online. It's critical we activate it. But this part of the brain, your emotional circuitry, is very dominant because it's a survival mechanism, basically. And it houses the hippocampus, which stores your memories relevant to you, your amygdala, which sits on the end of the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, which activates your hormonal release, the pituitary gland. It's all going on in there. And this kicks in very quickly, system one, uh, to keep us alive. And system two, the slower, more rational brain will activate. And if we can allow this to activate without making an immediate response, then we are more likely to make a better decision. But the big problem with the frontal lobe is it's an energy hog. It consumes huge amounts of energy and it gets really tired, really hungry, really quickly. So this world, the virtual world that we're in is exhausting because we're using it to pay attention and then we're using it to make decisions. And by the end of the day, our brain is fried. So we need to you know, really recognize that this needs a reboot. So scheduling Zoom calls or webinars every other hour uh, is critical, not every hour, not back to back. And certainly we need to be going outside, having some fresh air, going for a walk in between 
Otherwise, we're not doing our brain any favors. You just mentioned memory, which is another extremely important function of the brain and probably one of the most misunderstood or less known, if you will. Yes. Well, memory, there's no capacity in the brain for remembering the truth. And that's what we have to remember. Memory is very subjective. And every time we remember something, we either add or delete aspects of the original memory. So we're constantly changing the memories we have. And uh, Daniel Kahneman, again, speaks about the experiencing brain and the remembering brain. And the experiencing brain and the remembering brain are two very different things. We never remember an experience exactly how it happened. And often the thing that happens right at the end of the experience affects the entire memory. He speaks about this. If you're in an open air concert and you're enjoying the concert and then for the last 15 minutes, the heavens open and it pours down. You will, you know, we will say it ruined my experience. Well, it doesn't ruin your experience because you enjoyed it up until that point, but it ruins your memory of the experience. So remembering and experiencing are two different things, and our memories will always change and they're constructive and reconstructive. So we cannot rely on memory. And and I also in the book, I also quote Elizabeth Loftus's work where she asked people to come in and watch two cars bash into each other. And then she asked different groups of people how fast the cars were going. And the word she uses for each group changes their recollection of the speed. So she'll, she asked the first group how fast were the cars going when they collided, second group when they bumped, third group when they crashed, <laughs> smashed. And as the words got more dramatic, the speed went up. So we are affected by the way we're asked to remember as well. And in courts, we need to remember this, that the way the barristers or the attorneys put the questions to people will affect their memory of the events. At this point, it is not surprising that the entertainment industry, and not only, many marketing strategies as well, rely on the principle that a good start and a good end are necessary to create long-lasting positive impressions And whatever happens in between, well, we can get away with. Exactly, exactly. You'll remember what happens at the beginning because you're hit between the eyes and then you will always remember at the end. It's primary and recency. And uh, this does affect our memory. But memory is, yeah, very, very unreliable, but very, very interesting. And of course, the structure that stores... So memory sort of sits in different parts of the brain. But the area of the brain that, that probably has had the most amount of attention in recent years is the hippocampus because it's the structure that's affected by Alzheimer's and it gets, it gets holes in it, which is really nasty. But this area of the brain is also the structure where we could, that we can grow and we can grow neurons in the hippocampal area through physical cardiovascular exercise. And black cab drivers in London grew their hippocampus by learning the knowledge over two to three years. A five-year study showed that over five years, the hippocampus grew because they had to learn all of London's network of roads and landmarks and famous buildings. And this actually helped their hippocampus to grow. So our brain is really plastic. It's constantly changing uh, depending on the lives we lead. And if we continue to learn and we continue to try and remember things and and learn new things and, and speak a different language, it's so good for us because our brain is like a muscle that's being exercised all the time. Helena, based on your, on your research, don't you think that uh, all these helping technologies such as uh, GPS, uh, the cloud where all our information is stored, uh, uh, can somehow kill some of the cognitive functions uh, of our brain? Absolutely. And this is called digital amnesia where, you know, if you ask someone now, What's your phone number? People struggle to remember even their own phone number. But, you know, we used to be able to rattle off people's phone numbers. No problem. And now we're just accessing these numbers at the press of a button. And we don't think to try and remember something. We go straight to Google. We are relying on external sources rather than our own internal resource. And it is. It's a problem that we're in. I think the technology has done so much for us, but it also has not helped us in many ways as well. And, you know, we're still organic creatures. We still 
need to keep ourselves developing and growing and learning. And, you know, if we don't do that, then the synapses that we've spent so long forging and strengthening just simply die away. So literally, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Your book provides an explanation for some other elements of memory, such as the sensory memory, the short-time working memory, the long-term memory. Would you like to walk us through all these features of our memory? Yes, yeah, so sensory memory is literally just a matter of, you know, seconds, microseconds. And the stages of memory are really interesting because what we talk about, people talk about short-term memory as if it's a day. Short-term memory is around 10 seconds, so it's really short. And so we take in information all the time through our senses. Most of the information we take in will come in through the eyes. But if, if our sight is impaired, then we take information in through our other senses. And this is the sensory memory. And a lot of it then goes to decay. It just, it just leaves us. And it's all to do with how we encode. So there are three stages to memory. There's uh, encoding, storage, and retrieval. So how we encode to begin with will then affect how much is then taken into short-term memory. But short-term memory is held for a matter of seconds as well. And then that, most of that we lose. If we manage to encode well, we then take it into long-term memory. And long-term memory is unlimited. We can store as much as we want in long-term memory. But again, we lose it along the way. We forget certain details. We add to other things. And then, so if we encode... So visual encoding is when you see something, visual and acoustic. So Carlo, let's say I met you for the first time and uh, I saw you and I said, hi, uh, my name's Helena. And you say, hi, my name's Carlo. So I'm looking at you. I've now heard your voice. I've now heard you say your name. I then repeat your name. Hi, Carlo. That's an acoustic encoding. But then I could forget your name unless I do something else, which is semantic encoding. So I might say, oh, Carlo, what an interesting name. Where does that come from? Or I know somebody with the name of Carlo. So I make sense of it. I put it into a context. I create meaning. And this is semantic encoding. And if we do that, people always ask me, how do you remember people's names so well? And it's because I have trained myself to semantically encode. So everything, I I, sorry. Where? So everything I learn about the brain, I try and put it into practice because then I can prove that it works. If it doesn't work, I don't talk about it. So it's very interesting. So the semantic encoding really does work, but you do need to pay attention to how you are remembering and how you're storing. I once attended one of those uh, memory empowerment courses many years ago with uh, an Italian memory world champion. His name is Gianni Golfera. And I remember that uh, the entire methodology was based on uh, visual associations. Yes, visual associations. And sometimes these memory experts will use a technique called method of loci or method of loci. It depends on how people pronounce it. And What you do is you try and remember things, but you associate them with either objects or particularly objects in a room and you place the objects around a room and you're much more likely to make those associations and remember because this is part of semantic encoding and it works really well. But you see, the brain is so visual that, you know, if, you, if, if I said to you, dog, your brain will throw up a picture of a dog. If I describe the dog as um, licking your face, chewing a bone, lying on the, on the rug, you start to see the dog. So the brain loves turning words into pictures because we like to be able to see what we hear because we're, we're so visual. There are days in which I seem to remember pretty much everything and other days in which, I don't know, I, I kind of miss every detail I need to carry on with my life. Why is that, Elena? It's probably because sometimes we're distracted and our minds are taken elsewhere. It's interesting because the brain, we tend to drift off. You know, we don't pay attention very well. And in, you know, with the advent of technology and social media and pop-up emails, our attentional system is pretty terrible now. And it, it was never good to begin with, and now it's got worse and worse. And so we're easily distracted and our mind does tend to wander off very quickly half the time people say 
And this is interesting. When we are worried about something, it consumes us because the brain is designed to be quite negative. We're negatively biased. So if I said to you, I've got good news and I've got bad news, what do you want first? You'll say, give me the bad news. We hook to the bad news. And the sad thing about the brain is that we love bad news about other people because we're just fascinated. So if you think about the brain being easily distracted, hooking to the negative, hooking to the anxious, when we do drift off or when we're easily distracted, we tend to hook to the negative, we hook to the worrying. And that, and then if the brain is being distracted, and we, we're designed for distraction because we had to be alert to anything that was dangerous in our environment. We had to see if anything had big teeth or big claws. So our brains are constantly scanning the world around us to see if it can keep us safe. So this is why we're designed for distraction. And this is why we're negatively biased, because we have to see threat before what's safe. We have to see what's dangerous first. And when we are worried about anything, then our brain can't really remember anything because we're focused solely on survival. We are focused on staying alive. And and in times like this, our memories will be suffering because we are worried about how we're going to live, you know, what's going to happen to us. Uncertainty is a killer. So, you know, this is not a good time for us. And attention suffers. And in fact, uh, the way you explain uh, uh, attention in the book is quite different uh, from what people generally think. Yeah, well, attention has had so much attention (laughs) over the last few years. So, the, and you know, Francis Crick, who was the who was the father, you know, the you know became famous for DNA. He he was looking at attention way back. And what happens with attention is that the we work like a torch spotlight. So it works, it shines a spotlight. But what we have to remember that it also does it tunes out everything else. So we literally can't take in information that we're deciding not to pay attention to. So we miss huge, huge changes. We miss big, significant events in our environment because we're not paying attention to it. And, you know, so we don't see the world like everybody else sees the world. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. What we're deciding to pay attention to constructs our reality. We live in a society that celebrates multitasking, which is uh, totally adverse to human nature. Well, yes, if you're trying to pay attention to two things at the same time, there is a cognitive cost. So people who bring their laptops into a meeting and they think, I'm going to do my emails or I'm going to do my work while I'm in the meeting, if they're looking at their laptop, and remember the eyes were very visual, so the eyes bully and dominate all our other senses. If you're looking at your laptop and you're looking at your emails, you will literally not be able to hear much because Eyes will dominate your ability to take in auditory information and you'll tune it out. And we can't multitask. You can have music playing in the background on low. And if you're not paying attention to the music and it's on low, that's okay. It's sort of like a white noise, but you're not attending to it. That's different. But if you're having to use your cognitive resources to, you know, at the same time, there will be a payoff. And one will dominate the other. And trying to multitask is very painful for the brain. It makes us very stressed because we can't do it. So there's no point. (laughs) I'm extremely happy you're breaking this myth because I find it so tiring. And I'm a victim myself uh, because I always try to do many things at the same time at a huge expense uh, in terms of uh, mental fatigue and uh, quality of the output uh, of, of every task. The brain hates it. The brain hates it. And the brain's saying, why are you doing this to me? You know, I really do one thing. You'll be much quicker. You know, I get people to practice little things with multitasking and they, it hurts them. So I say, you know, try that. Try it at the same time. Now try one after the other. The brain's sighing, giving a huge sigh of relief because it's like, oh, thank goodness. One thing in time, and this is something for the world today when we're in a Zoom world, is that we should only be focusing on one topic at a time. You know, trying to make the brain pay attention to lots of different topics on the same Zoom call, it's not going to happen. So one topic at a time. I think Accenture did this early on, the strategy meetings. You know, they realized that they would have to just focus on one thing at a time. When I ask you my first question today, I said that uh, the book was intriguing, and I referred specifically to a chapter titled uh, The Brain and Language, and I really find this intriguing. 
I have to say, language is one of my not-so-hidden passions. And the industry I've been working in for the past 20 years, the luxury industry, has its own language, which I think is a beautiful vocabulary that can be used in many other businesses and areas of life. You know, when we say something like, uh, my pleasure rather than yes, uh, or when you call a factory a workshop, or when you say a word like beautiful rather than nice, you are introducing small nuances in terms of vocabulary that create a completely different effect. And, uh, And although the brain is extremely visual, as you mentioned before, I'd love you to explain how words can change pretty much everything in the way we perceive the world and we are perceived by the world. Words are one of the greatest tools of business. And, um, you know, if we think about the words that we use without just spurting them out, then we become much better at communicating. But words carry words carry an interesting effect. There's either the placebo, which is like a drug, which is they please the brain, or they carry a nocebo, which is they hurt the brain. So, for example, a nocebo, uh, a nocebo uh, experience would be if you go to a dentist or a doctor, and you're about to, you're sitting in the chair, and they come advancing towards you with a syringe or a needle or a sharp implement, and then they say to you, just before they're about to do something, just before the procedure, they say to you, "This won't hurt a bit. This will only sting a bit. This will only prove." And the brain is now thinking, this is going to hurt. And of course, your experience of pain becomes greater. So, and words like change is a, is a nocebo word, you know, reminding someone they're going to have to change what they do. I always say, don't talk about it. You know, find ways of introducing new, new the brain loves. The brain loves new because we have such a novelty bias that we switch on to new. And this is what Apple has done beautifully with the word new. We love the word together because it's unifying. It unites us. We love the word free because we like getting stuff for free. We love the word now because it's instant. But feedback is a nocebo word uh, because if you tell, so if I said to you, Carlo, can I give you some feedback? I might as well be saying to you, Carlo, can I please punch you in the face? Because immediately we think, uh oh, what have I done? What's coming? And you're primed for a negative experience. And of course, then it feels like one. So that's the first thing, that words carry this enormous uh, power. Words need to be kept simple, visual, and memorable because we love being able to see them. So if you think of Bill Gates's wonderful, when he came out with a PC and he said, a computer on every desk in every home, brain loves it. That I can see, I can do something with that. John F. Kennedy, we will put a man on the moon and return him safely by the end of the decade. Amazing. Thomas Edison, we will make the electricity so cheap that only the rich will burn candles. That's a (laughs) wonderful use of language. So we need to get rid of the jargon. Use language that the brain can see and uh, use language that the brain can do something with. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. If Martin Luther King had stood up and said, I have a vision, a mission, some KPIs, some masters, But I have a dream. Amazing. Use words to conjure up uh, an experience. And the lovely thing about words, too, is that they hit different parts of the brain. So visual words, your seeing brain is here. Your occipital lobe is right here, back of the head. Your parietal lobe is next to your motor cortex here. So visual words get processed more by your occipital lobe. Anything to do with motor movement, so running and movement. So Nike, you know, when they talk about running, that part of the brain is activated. Your olfactory sense, which is your taste and it links to your smell, goes into the heart just here in your in your temporal lobe. And, and, and so we have different words that then get processed differently. And the more descriptive those words, the more the brain activates. So the more sensory the words that like you are explaining the more the brain will light up. So really thinking about language is fantastic because, you know, it really helps the brain work. There are a few more intriguing and uh, faceted words, uh, like because. Because reduces uncertainty. And it's really interesting, the word because. The Harvard study that did this in the 70s showed this. And we know it's the 70s because they had a Xerox machine, but they had a researcher trying to jump to the front of the queue or the line 
and uh, they they tried three times. So the first time it was, can I can I come to the front of the queue? Um, I've got some pages to photocopy, and they got about a sixty percent compliance rate. You know, people would step away, but then they tried it two more times with ridiculous excuses like, can I go to the front of the line because I have some pages to photocopy? Can I go to the front of the line because I'm in a rush? And you think, well, those are those are ridiculous excuses. But the word because carries such a wonderful power. The brain accepts anything that comes after it because it needs a reason. And the reason goes below the level of consciousness. We're more likely to accept it. So the compliance rate for the because excuses went up to 93, 94%. Unbelievable. Wow. So we have to remember this, that if we give a reason, you know, imagine sitting on a train, you don't know why the train has stopped. The train suddenly stops. You're sitting there, you know, 10 minutes go past, 20 minutes. And then eventually the, the voice comes on the tannoy and explains. Now, the reason may not be great, but at least now we know. And that's the brain's reaction. At least now we know. Give me a reason. Tell me why. Answer the why. How about the word uh, but? This is one that needs to be handled with care. It has to be handled with care because it's a negation word. It negates everything that goes before it and focuses the brain on what comes after it. So if I said to you, uh, I appreciate what you're saying, Carlo, but what I'm actually saying is I don't, I'm not listening. I don't agree with you. And here's what I think. That's a nocebo way to use language. And then people then start, you know, we don't listen to each other when we start to use that language. You can use but in, in a better way. You can negate the negative. So if I said to you, I can't make that date on this occasion, or I can't do this for you. And if I say, I can't do this for you, Carlo, I'm being personal, I'm personalizing my message. And then I give a reason because, but what I can, the date I can do is this, I'm taking you from my can't to my can, and I'm moving you forward into possibility. So it's a much better way of using the word but. Before we move to the next subject, uh, which in my opinion is very important, uh, biases, uh, there are two more words I'd like to discuss with you because they are extremely powerful and they can change somebody's life, especially children. And these words are yes and no. Yes, and uh, when we say yes, when and when we allow ourselves to say yes, we're accepting, we're, we're seeing possibility, we're accepting. The word no immediately creates an obstacle in in us and also it's very stressful for us to hear and with children of course children need to grow up with the right guidance and the right you know and, and learning right and wrong but the most important thing for children is to feel that life is full of possibility and that they can experiment and learn and you know try new things and to build this curiosity if you're constantly telling a child no then their curiosity will be killed and they will stop asking because they will just be primed to get a negative. So saying yes and, and creating this feeling of possibility will then stimulate their thinking, their curiosity, will help them learn and develop much, much better. But the word no, we tend to use so much. And, and in business as well, you know, the word no, we have different ways of saying no, which is, you know, We haven't got the budget. We haven't got the resources. I'll get back to you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not good. So, yeah, we do really need to recognize every time we say anything to anybody else, we will affect their brain. Now the time has come for us to discuss biases, probably the greatest obstacle to logical thinking and to seeing things as they really are. Biases. We are all biased. We're human and to be human is to be biased and to be biased is to be human. Biases are a part of our psychological immune system. So if we think of biases as a protective mechanism to help us make quick decisions and to cut through information to be able to get us to a solution fast, that's how biases work. And to some extent, you know, biases do work for us. We rely on them. We use them all the time. But we often use them without realizing. This is what we call unconscious bias. But we can be conscious of our biases as well. And some of our, our biases are conscious as well. And we do need to think about 
making our biases more conscious and recognizing, facing our biases head on. Uh, people who say they're not biased are suffering from bias, <laughs> from over-optimism bias and overconfidence bias. We all are biased. And our biases emerge from our upbringing. We adopt the biases of our parents, our culture, our friends. Uh, we like to fit in, so we do what they do. And so we do need to recognize the power of bias and, and how it is affecting our decision-making. And again, going back to Daniel Kahneman, slowing down our thinking, allowing other people's perspectives and lenses to be put into the mix of our decision-making will help us get to a better solution. Because the more we have to play with, the better the result. We're not designed to seek out difference because the brain likes to predict and it doesn't like to predict anything that is different. So this is, this is the big problem. So diversity and inclusion are big problems because the brain doesn't seek out diversity. It's like our diet. You know, if we have a very diverse diet, our gut microbiome strengthens. If we have a diverse brain diet, our brain strengthens. Shall we discuss a few more biases that we experience on a daily basis? Uh, like, for example, the confirmation bias, uh, which in my opinion is being triggered so much by technology. Yes, technology really takes advantage of this because it, it sends you um, reminders of things that you already know you like. And we, we tend to see the world, as I said, we tend to see the world according to us. So what confirmation bias does is that anything we take in, we are very selective and we select the information that confirms the view we already hold. Having people disagree with you it's very painful for us because it, it shatters all our own you know assumptions and inferences and, and the knowledge we've built up and you know it's called into question and we hate that because we hate feeling that we've got it wrong and especially if you've built up an expertise and the expertise then becomes out of date or no longer relevant uh, we hate that too so yes confirmation bias is a really big one and it's linked to cognitive dissonance so cognitive dissonance is when We have a belief about ourselves and then our behavior, we do something that might suggest that that belief is called into question. So, for example, let's take lockdown. And I've had friends and family who have disobeyed lockdown rules. Now, they would never see themselves as lawbreakers, as um, rule breakers. They would never see themselves as dishonest. But when you call their behavior into question, they now have this terrible tension in the brain, their belief about themselves versus their behavior. So in order to make sure this belief is still left intact, they have to rationalize the behavior. So people find all kinds of excuses why they've disobeyed lockdown. We saw it with Dominic Cummings in the UK. You know, a raft of excuses to justify the wrong behavior. It's still wrong, but they feel better about it. And this is called cognitive dissonance. And this feeds into confirmation bias. Challenging ourselves to face ourselves, to understand that this is a brain thing and that we need to have the checks and balances in place. These are critical if we need to keep our brain open. Another bias you mentioned in the book that uh, made me think quite a lot uh, is the learned helplessness. Yes, that was, that was Martin Seligman and Thomas Meyer with the dogs. Learned helplessness often originates in childhood. And what happens is that when we're met with no, when we're met with constant barriers, or obstruction, we learn to be helpless. So the experiment that um, Seligman and Meyer carried out with dogs was they put dogs in a box or a, or a compartment, and if they tried to escape, they'd get an electric shock. And then they removed the electric shocks, but the dogs still didn't bother because they'd learned not to bother. They'd learned to give up. And they called this learned helplessness. And they'd, we've seen it with baby elephants when they're tethered. And when the baby elephant grows to become an enormous elephant, they could break that tether no problem, but they don't because they've learned not to bother. So we learn to give up very, very early on and very quickly. And if we're not careful, we don't take courage and curiosity into our later years. 
So this is, again, something to watch out for with young children is that if children constantly feel a failure or they constantly feel that they aren't good at something, then they stop trying, which is terribly sad. I agree. It's terribly sad. Helena, as we are heading towards uh, the end of our conversation, uh, to conclude, I would love you to highlight and explain the dangers coming from stress and uh, an unhealthy lifestyle to our brain and to our well-being in general. Will you? This is a topic I'm very passionate about, particularly at the moment. And I have been asked a few times to, to give talks about, you know, how do we get through particularly this period? Because it is a period of enormous stress, unexpected stress, largely because of the uncertainty and not knowing how it's all going to play out and when it's going to end. So stress is something that we're, again, we're designed for, but we're designed for acute stress. We're designed for short-term bursts of stress. And, and this is our fight-flight response that bursts into action to give us the strength to fight something Uh, that's in our world, or uh, to run away from it. This is our fight flight. And uh, we also have another stress pathway, which releases cortisol. So our fight flight response releases adrenaline, and cortisol is release, released from another part of the adrenal, um, the adrenal gland, which sits on top of the kidney. And these two work together. So cortisol has always had a really bad press, but it's really important for us because it helps to dumb down and dampen the immune system. Uh, because if we fire our immune system very quickly, too much, it becomes toxic to us. So cortisol is like a uh, hydrocortisone cream. It's an anti-inflammatory. So these two, adrenaline and cortisol, work to keep us going. But they're designed, it's designed for acute real stress. What it's not designed to do is activate for the modern world all the time. Um, social, modern, anticipated stress. If, even if it's not real, the brain will respond as if it's a real, a real stressor. And so this is being switched on all the time. Now, adrenaline isn't so bad because it leaves us quickly, but cortisol stays and the effects of cortisol are longer lasting. And over time, cortisol builds up. And this is very, very dangerous for us. So this long-term stress that's being switched on all the time but for something that's not even there. You know, we're imagining what might happen is far more stressful than what did happen. So an uncertain future is horrible for us. So this is something that, that's happening to us at the, at the moment and we need to be able to release the chemicals. So physical exercise is critical right now, more critical than ever getting outside into nature. We need to move. And if we don't move, we don't release Um, these chemicals and we need to feel that we've played an active role in our survival so this is something that we have to remember sleep is probably the number one most important thing in our life and if we don't focus on getting good quality sleep everything else is impaired uh, so if we're not sleeping but we're exercising it's fake exercise if we're not sleeping but we're eating good food it's fake nutrition we've got to sleep and we need about seven to nine hours a night because what happens during sleep is we have non-REM where we are accessing slow wave sleep which is our where our our body our tissues repair themselves physically it's critical sleep but every 90 minutes we go into rapid eye movement REM sleep And over the course of our sleep, this REM sleep lengthens. And this is why people are having lockdown dreams at the moment, because they're allowing their systems to sleep longer. So we start off with REM sleep of around 10 to 15 minutes, but then we move. And it, it can be up to an hour in our later uh, sleep cycle. So this is, this is really important. And REM is critical because it helps us focus on our thoughts, it helps to compartmentalize things, and it also helps to remove painful memories. So, you know, if we're managing stress, sleep is really, really critical. And the other thing about sleep is it squeezes out, the, the in sleep, we squeeze out the toxins. This is called our glymphatic um, nervous system. The glial cells in the brain squeeze out the toxins that are built up during the day, that the proteins that we need to get rid of, and if we don't get rid of them, they can really cause us problems. And two of them, beta amyloid and tau, are linked to Alzheimer's. So really important sleep. <clears throat> and then, of course, you've got the right food 
So exercise is really important. Sleep is really important. Food is really important. Um, and we do need to focus on uh, eating the right food. We are not designed to be in, in a glucose-rich world. We're designed to go for periods with no glucose because historically we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. So our brain loves fasting, intermittent fasting. So three times a week, skip breakfast. You know, let your let yourself um, empty and then ketone bodies then come into play. And the, but then we start burning fats. And this is what we're designed to do. We're not designed for ubiquitous food everywhere. We're designed to be able to go through periods of not eating. Um, and then we need to re- eat the right food. So in the book, I talk about the different foods and the different chemicals that we can eat. 60% of the brain is fat. So we need a diet rich in omega-3. And if we don't like oily fish, we need to take supplements because we cannot produce this ourselves. We need a healthy gut microbiome and, uh, and we need to put good bacteria in. So fermented foods like sauerkraut, kefir, really good for us as well. So there are lots of things that we can do. But I do end the book on, you know, whatever we decide to do, it's really important that we find joy in how we live. And I end with that because um, if we can find joy in the ordinary, find joy in everything we do, whether it's the ironing, the washing up, the cleaning, you know, if we can learn to access that in ourselves and be surrounded by, you know, wonderful people who support us, particularly at the moment. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm realizing that certain relationships that I came into lockdown with, into the pandemic with, certain relationships have really strengthened, business relationships, friendships, and certain relationships have weakened. And we won't forget how people treated us during this time. And so we do need to recognize that, you know, we can help each other but also uh, we need to find the, the joy in a very good supportive network. And that is critical to us, particularly at this time. And altruism is really important because when we're kind to people, it's good for them, but also we release endorphins, which are our internal painkillers. So we build our own resilience at the same time. So it's a, you know, it's a wonderful um, thing to be able to do to focus on someone else and feel that you're doing yourself good as well that shouldn't be the reason by the way but it's it's a good byproduct of kindness that's really wonderful and you know elena i do hope that many people have listened to this interview and many many leaders in particular because they need to understand that creating a culture of uh, psychological safety and transparency and that taking care of their people can actually help them grow their business and uh, and encourage creativity flowing to their organization. Yes, we hold other people's brain power in our hands and leaders particularly do that. And with every word you can, you know, crush or create. And I think we do need to see the possibility in everybody. We do need to see the possibility in ourselves. Stay curious, stay learning and and laugh and you know, just just enjoy life because it's going to pass so quickly and we need to make the most of every single moment. And particularly at the moment, when we don't have any idea how the future is going to go. We need to focus on the present, what we can do for each other right now. Psychological safety is critical. How do we get people around us to feel safe or at least as safe as we can do? Make the best of what's in front of us because none of us have chosen it and we need to make the best of it. We need to just learn from it. And I'm discovering new things about myself all the time. I never imagined in a million years I'd be talking into a camera. (laughs) But you know, I'm learning and um, it is what it is. I'd rather be meeting you face to face, but that will happen one day soon, I hope. Absolutely. I hope so. Helena, before I thank you for all the gold nuggets that you have shared with us today, and you can bet uh, I can recognize gold when I see it, uh, I realized that uh, you started your journey, so to speak, in uh, neuroscience uh, after a career in the corporate world in sales and marketing. And so I'd like to ask you, if somebody amongst our listeners today will decide to read your book and understand more about their brain and neuroscience in general, how is their life going to improve or change? 
Well, my hope is that if people read the book, or at least even dip in and dip out, they don't have to read the whole thing. You know, each chapter is a kind of a standalone, and it directs you to the other chapters if you want to find out more. My hope is that people will take more responsibility for their brain health and also their body health. And I hope that I will spark curiosity in their brains to want to learn more. I mean, it's a very, in many ways, it's just a very quick journey through the brain. It doesn't, it goes, you know, if you want to dive more deeply, there are articles and books listed at the end of every chapter. But the attempt is just to give people a flavor of what's out there. And there's more, you know, particularly over the last six months, much more research has been done in this area. But for them to really think about, be much more uh, conscious about the decisions they're making about the way they live, the way they talk, the way they are with other people, choices they make, and also just trying to focus on what's really important. You know, I think um, at the end of chapter 12, I talk about ikigai. I don't know how to pronounce this, the Japanese word for meaning and finding your your purpose, your personal purpose in, in, in life. And it's really important we do that, that we focus on what we're good at, what we love doing. And if you can get someone to pay for it, even better. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's really important that we, we understand the impact of the brain is so invisible. We don't think about it. We don't we just take it for granted. And I don't want people to take it for granted anymore. I want people to really, really um, look after it, treasure it, cherish it. It's such an important part of us. Where can people find you and your book? Well, I'm contactable on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn uh, profile, so it's very easy to find me there. And if they would like to contact me, then I can send them a signed copy of the book. If they would like to go onto Amazon, it's available on Amazon as well. And it's also available in all bookshops, published by Wiley. It's already all over the world. So wherever you are, hopefully you'll be able to get a copy of the book. Elena Boski, I was delighted to have you on Lux and Tech. Thank you very much, Carlo. It was a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this content, remember to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our weekly interviews with world's experts in the fields that are shaping the world we live in. You can also help us grow the podcast by sharing it with the people who need to hear it and by leaving a positive comment on the platform you use. I truly appreciate it. See you next week.